We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What up, everyone? We got a two-parter to kick off your Sunday and or Monday morning, whenever you're listening to this. Remember to rate and review the podcast, by the way. That always helps. Scroll down on your iPhone, hit that five-star. We will be good to go. First up, the research for the Match Play Championship at Austin Country Club. Obviously, we're not going to know when the pods are released until sometime on Monday. So Jeff and I are saving the Picks and Bets show until after we know what the pods are going to be this week. So it'll be coming out a little bit later than usual if you're looking for it on like Monday at noon. It's not going to be out then. It's going to be out probably an hour or so after we finish up hearing what the pods are. Then we'll film the show. Then we'll get it out right to you. No problem. Listeners League has not been added as of yet because I do not have the link to everything. So I will add that to the YouTube video because it won't automatically update on the podcast feed for reasons, I suppose. But you can get that over there. I think there's 3,000 spots this week. So just jump over to the YouTube page. You can find it no problem in the video version of this show for the research for the match play. Plus, the second half of the show is actually uh, a breakdown of the NFL. I did one with Jake last week going through all the free agent signings. But we missed Watson. We missed Devontae Adams. We missed Allen uh, Robinson, Juju, Baker speculation. So the final part of this show, the second half, is going to be all NFL. Now, if you're here for NFL, just jump right to that. If you don't care, I don't care. Well, I do care. I wish you would listen, but that's okay. If you're only here for the golf, we're all good. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience presented by DraftKings 2022 WGC Dell Match Play Picks, Research, Preview, The First Look. It's not going to be a super long one today because... It's the match play. Until we know the brackets for the match play and the pods themselves, it's going to be difficult to parse too much. But what we can try to do today is try to identify the types of players that have succeeded at Austin CC since this tournament moved there 
five years ago. We've seen it played four times, but it was obviously canceled two years ago because of the beginning of the pandemic. But now we're back and we'll take a look year by year to see what we can glean. It's a Pete Dye course. So we can jump into the Pete Dye stuff, but it is important to know who is in this field and who is not in this field. So the top 64 in the world rankings automatically get the bid in. Obviously, they're not all playing. So some of the stragglers have found themselves into the field as well. So the guys that are qualified, who as of right now are not playing in the WGC match play are Cam Smith taking a continued break after winning the Players' Championship. Well-deserved, Cam, although I would like him at this course. Now, you don't even have to think about him. Rory McIlroy is taking a pass on this week as well. Hideki is still injured, so he's not playing. Ditto for Harris English, we have not seen in quite some time. And, boy, spoiler, Phil's not playing. I'm telling you, the Masters is at least the floor of when we're seeing Phil next in competitive play. Even then, I don't know when we're going to end up seeing him. I really do think it's going to be. Maybe he'll sneak into Valero and try to have it come back the week before, but at least at Augusta, he can get the necessary protections that Augusta National provides for everyone. So Phil at the Masters, not this week in the match play. That means we get five extra players in the field from down in the world rankings. Seb Straka is the last man in. Uh, Ian Poulter's in the field. Who else do we got here? Uh, Bobby Mack, Robert McIntyre. First time we've seen him since the Genesis, since he somehow isn't able to qualify for anything despite being like the number 68 player in the world although he is qualified for the masters but he won his pod last year so maybe there is something the one thing i have noticed before we get into anything is that left-handed players have done really well at this course year over year obviously bubba has won here and there's not a slew of great left-handed players at the moment but i was on bobby mack last year to win his pod just due to the fact that he was a lefty. And that was the same pod where Kevin Na made Dustin Johnson put it out, then Dustin missed, and then went completely on tilt. Robert McIntyre hit that amazing shot. I think it was on 18 where he drove the green. Maybe it was 17. Either way, he ended up playing really well. Something with left-handed players. Even Brian Harmon has had some success at the match play when he's qualified in the past. So that's what we're looking at for the field this week. The betting odds will be released before the pods are released. Then they'll completely readjust. So if we can find some sleepers or some potential players from deeper down who might get a better draw, a worse draw, you're kind of playing with fire when it comes to the odds, as the favorites will obviously be the favorites. But it's a really weird system. And when we go back and look at the previous champions, we're going to find out that it's not uh, exactly who you think it's going to be that wins here. So we're on Fantasy National right now. Um, And we'll get back to Fantasy National in a second. What I want to do is go back and look over time at some of the different type of years that we've seen. Obviously, we saw Billy Horschel end up winning a year ago. There's the Robert McIntyre winning his group over Adam Long, Dustin Johnson, and Kevin Na uh, a year ago. But as we kind of cruise down and take a look at the bracket, all this is on Wikipedia. You can find it pretty easily. You see that you have Billy Horschel over Scotty Scheffler, 2-1 and one in the final. And then Matt Kuchar beat Victor Perez. Like, those are not bombers by any stretch of the imagination. All those guys, I mean, Horschel, Scheffler, and Kuchar, all very good at getting it up and down from near the green so the scrambling was at a premium last year it was very windy the final few days as well so it was a bit more of a grind you can see brian Harmon advanced john rom was in there sergio tommy fleetwood uh, even throughout his struggles ended up advancing made a hole in one to eliminate someone forget 
entirely who it was at that point. Just look at who it advanced. Like, it's not who you think. So I think the only one seed who advanced last year was John Rahm. So we got John Rahm and EVR uh, going down into the quarterfinals. So trying to break out of your group is a lot tougher. And you'll see some common names pop up over time. Cooch has done well here. Obviously, he's not in the field this time around because his world ranking nowhere near that point anymore. Uh, in 2019, we can go back and take a look at the bracket to see who ended up advancing. Kevin Na ended up finding his way out. The Beer Garden ended up beating Tiger. Kuchar made it all the way to the finals before he lost to Kevin Kisner in the finals. So it's like the K- Kisner. Kucher, Horschel, like that's the type of player that has had a lot of success at this tournament. Norin is back in this year as well. Someone who lost to Bubba in the quarterfinals the year that Bubba ended up winning. Sergio's done very well at match play as well. So your high-end ball strikers who have done well at Pete Dye courses over time. Uh, Colonial seems like it's another crossover course. It's a very short course. So yes, there is an advantage to some of the longer hitters who can get to the par fives and two challenge for Eagles. But you just look at the list of these guys. They're good ball strikers by and large, but they're accurate players. They're pretty good putters. I mean, Molinari is not really that great of a putter, but at the time he was still in the midst of being like top tier players, the number seven seed in this tournament. And even to go back and look at it three years ago, Molinari, Rose, and Rory all advanced as one seeds. That was it. You had Leash as a high two seed. Maybe he was a bottom end one seed based on withdrawals. No, I guess he was 17. He was the highest end number two. And same as Louie at that point. Paul Casey was a one seed that year as well. So more one seeds advanced in 2019. We take a look at 2018 and try to find out the winners. This was the Bubba year. This was a very fun year. Uh, you had Norin over Justin Thomas in the third place match. Bubba over Kisner in the final. Kisner's just been great at this tournament over the years. But again, like Norin's not big off the tee. He's more of a grinding type player. So Kisner over Poulter. Norin over Cam Smith. Kyle Stanley. Uh, if you want to talk about all ball striking, no putting, and not long off the tee. That is Kyle Stanley. And then you had Bubba. Bubba, who's played Pete Dye really well in the past, lefties again. Uh, it was Bubba versus Harmon. So you had a lefty-on-lefty matchup to start off. And then the course history battle up here, too. Kisner versus Kucher. Louis advanced a few times. Poulter's advanced a few times out of the first round. Hatton found himself out of the first round as well. Si Wu's a good Pete Dye player. He continued to go. You see Sergio found his way out again. Sergio might be the play this week. I know that's going to be probably an incredibly popular pick when we look at it, but... Sergio, for whatever reason, continues to play. I mean, he does really well in Texas over time anyway, but Pete Dye courses, he's played well. Something about these greens isn't the end of the world. And you have to think about match play is you can get away with bad putting if the ball striking is really, really good and you're going to get gimmies from time to time that theoretically should help out the worst putters in the field. I think this was the year that Norin against Kisner in the third place match ended up uh, it went to 19 holes, but I think that he had like an up and down or a putt from one side of the green on like 15 or 16, something like that, and ended up basically putting it off the green from where he was. Like it wasn't even close. And that was the end of the match for him. Although I, I would expect Norin with the way that he's playing at the moment to be a pretty popular selection, to tell you the truth. Then there was year one in Austin that does not resemble anything. My guy, Tani Hara and Bill Haas made a run, but I believe it was one versus two 
in the final. At least, I don't know where Rom was ranked in the world at that time. Yeah, he was 21. But it was Dustin versus Rom in the final. And then it led us to believe that the stats that you really wanted to target for the week were like, oh yeah, strokes gained off the tee and distance is where you want to go. But even if you look around at like the rest of the players, Noren advanced to face Dustin that year. You had Ross Fisher and Tani Hara. Soren Kelson, who's most definitely in that like Kevin Kisner type mold. Ditto for Bill Haas. You see Phil advance that year, another left-handed player, ended up doing well. We've seen Leishman and Kevin Na both advance multiple years. Charles Howell had multi-year advancements out of here. Uh, Bubba had made, he lost to Ross Fisher, but he had made it out of the first round as well. So all different things to potentially look at. Uh, How did Scheffler do his first year? Let's try to find old Scotty Scheff. Who were some of the guys who ended up going? Oh, Stenson just ran train through his group that year. Day is the ones he didn't win a match. That uh, That's actually somewhat surprising, although that was the beginning of the downturn for him that year. So Hatton ended up advancing, Kucher and JB. Maybe Scheffler didn't play? Is that possible that he just skipped this event? That seems strange for him playing in Texas at the time. I guess he just wasn't qualified. So yeah, his first year was a, a good year for old Scotty Scheffler when it came down to trying to make his big run. It's funny that he came so close to this last year, uh, and that wasn't really the end of it. And if you look at Bayhill from a few weeks ago, obviously Scheffler won, Horschel tied for second place. Maybe that means that Vic will have a good run at it this time around. Uh, Hatton's another one that we've seen with success there over the years. Sergio didn't play all that poorly. Fleetwood's had a couple good runs at API as well. So maybe that's an angle that you want to play. I I really have no rhyme or reason of why certain guys tend to play well in this type of format. Kisner's kind of a killer, I suppose. Although not last year, but more years than not, Kevin Kisner has played really well at this field over the years. So I think that's worth looking at. We take a look at the course uh, we talked about. I think Austin CC is in here. Where are we at? Austin Country Club. Uh, I'm doing this well before the field was announced, so uh, everything is not loaded into Fantasy National as of yet. Reminder to smash the like button for the episode, by the way. Give me your early lean on a deep sleeper down in the comment section. Sub to Mayo Media Network. The newsletter will be probably out on Tuesday evening because this event starts on Wednesday. So for the purposes of the Pat Mayo experience, Jeff and I are going to wait until the pods are actually released. I think it's Monday afternoon. It might be Monday evening now that I think about it. But we'll have the research show out. I have plenty of football shows out, Breaking Down Free Agency, an Oscar Picks and Bet show with my guy Scott Yeager. That's already going to come out before the betting show with Jeff. So uh, we're going to have that. Probably no DraftKings show this week because who Jeff and I pick in our bracket and who we think are going to advance out of the pods, I mean, that's who we're going to take on DraftKings. And we're going to get down into the nitty gritty of, maybe I'll touch on that at the end, but like you want to try to take different guys from different quadrants to try to maximize the potential now that works in perfect theory when we think about it because yeah you want to optimize your chance to have six of six make it to the next round and then hopefully have four of four two of two now that never actually happens mind you but at the same time you do want to try to think that you're going to get some stuff right at the same time so uh, the eagle rate at this course we see that there are two of the holes playing over three percent both par fives then you have number five which has generated a few eagles in the past as well it's funny that number 13 doesn't generate as many eagles as you'd think but you see just a lot of short par fours that's why you see the shorter hitting players end up doing really well here you have one two three four five par fours under 
400 yards, which means that if you can't drive them, and only one of them is really drivable, and a lot of guys still just hang back even more and just try to hit their wedges in from 70 to 125 yards, hit their number that they like to get to, and then all of a sudden, that's where they want to be in this tournament. So... Uh, that, yeah, it's hole number one is 394. So uh, any skill set can win here. Obviously, as we've seen over time, the three par fives end up playing pretty easy. And the harder ones are the deeper par fours. You make pars on those, that's usually pretty good. Uh, and you see, like, there's no real in-between number here. They're either under 400 and then they're 450 and above. And those are typically the hardest holes on the course, except for number nine, which over the years has played not easy, but around average at this course. Doesn't give up a ton of birdies, only 15%, but around a two-thirds of the field is going to make par on that hole. And you don't see the huge crooked numbers at all. Like, the bogey rate is below 20%. The birdie rate's a bit higher. So with an accessible pin, you can generally get to it no problem. Number 18, I believe, is the one that Robert McIntyre drove to really hammer it home. Cantlay, I recall, at this tournament last year. I always like Cantlay at these courses, but, like, dude could not make a putt to save his life. We don't have strokes gain metrics to go by. It's a lot of hearsay. Guys don't complete all 18 holes. So it's a lot of observation the first few days if you want to jump on someone live for one of these tournaments. But I would reason that most players are live to win a pod. Almost everyone is, even if it looks like John Rom versus Seb Straka. Doesn't mean Seb Straka can't win that pool. We've just seen it too many times at this tournament, especially lately at this tournament. So that's all we really got here because we don't have a lot of the strokes gain metrics to go through everything. So it's just sort of the scorecard. We're playing this one by ear. That's why I was using Wikipedia. For most of it, if you want to get the membership to Fantasy National, the Masters is right around the corner, and you're probably going to want to play a lot of lineups or make some bets on that one. FantasyNational.com slash Mayo to get yourself that discount of 20% off. Would highly recommend that you do that. So I have built a rudimentary model for this one. And we go down to the bottom. We got the match play. Uh, 30% strokes gained off the tee. I'm going to amend this for this year. I, I actually, I did some prep beforehand and amended it. So I'm going to drop this down to 20% strokes gained off the tee. 30% or 25, 30% strokes gained approach. And I am going to bump up strokes gained around the green to 15%. Just, we've seen a lot of really good scramblers. I'm going to get rid of strokes gained around the green actually entirely and just call it strokes gained short game. I want to combine because I want to overweight it uh, just based on some of the players that I've seen recently do really well here. They're either good chippers, good putters, or some combination of both. Uh, the Kisners, the Coochers, that type of thing. So I'm going to bump that up to 15%. So opportunities gained is going to remain at... 15 at 10% birdies are better gained at 15% eagles down at five because there's not a ton to be had but maybe I probably you know what I probably shouldn't even include that but I do have proximity from 100 to 125 for a lot of these shorter holes that guys just are not going to go after and I'm going to load that in the players once again uh, the field itself is not loaded in but we know who's playing in the field and if you just click over to uh, PGA Tour players. It's just going to have all the top guys in the world rankings and the money list, that kind of thing. So we're going to be able to kind of parse through to see where some of these guys rank. The modeling itself is going to be off a little bit because you're going to have guys near the very bottom, like, for example, Spieth is ranked 71st in this field, although there's only 64 players in the field because if we go down to, like, all players, you'll see, like, Bezadenhout is ranked 56. And thank God he's not playing and made the, or is he in this field? Maybe he is in this field. 
Oh, God. Is anyone going to lose money on Bazadenhout again this week? That's never any fun. Either way, uh, when we go through, you can just kind of see who the top end guys are for this field. Louis ranks out fifth. He's had success at this tournament in the past. Uh, Kokrak ranks down pretty low, although short course in Texas coming off a miscut. I don't know where his head's at at the moment mainly because it, he was one of the few Saudi guys that we thought was going to go over and play. Now, they've announced this Saudi schedule. I don't know if he's going to go try to take some of this free money that's available over there. It didn't seem like he had uh, his full faculties at all uh, over the course of the last little bit. So we can kind of look at I mean, Rory's not playing, but he was ranked first. You see Scheffler is up there as well. Patrick Reed is way down on this list. Stuart Sink, way down on this list. Kevin Na, uh, just coming off the baby, maybe baby swag. Maybe he has absolutely nothing left in the tank as i can attest from having two little kids over the past three years that you're not always feeling the best a few weeks out and really into it sung jay i do think is somewhat interesting at this tournament based on his you know his short game his putting um, the approach really hasn't been all that great over the past 50 rounds though let's shrink this down to the past 24 rounds and see if there are players either in wedge proximity and short game that are popping up a little bit more that are very balanced across the board. Because when we click on the Pete Dye filter, we're going to see Sergio, we're going to see Abraham answer, Patrick Cantlay, see woo, Kim, my guy, who has advanced out of here once. He almost feels like the ultimate match play player. He's going to lose like seven and six, or he's going to win seven and six. Uh, he'll either go full aims or anti-aims, one of the two in this tournament. So who are guys right now that we see in the in terms of the wedge proximity, the very elite players, you got Morikawa, Spieth, Justin Thomas, and Louie all rate out really well. Cam Smith not playing. Xander ends up there as he's kind of grinding his way through the Valspar as we speak right now. Scheffler, just very good across the board, uh, except for off the tee and opportunities game. That still makes him number two overall because he's so good at everything else. The short game has been really good overall. Sungjae and Reid are going to do it with short game, but the rest of their games have been a bit off, although Sungjae's driving has been really good. Corey Connors interesting i don't know if he has the grinding type mentality but this is a shorter course should be able to use uh the very top end of his game was much better at the players than he had been in recent weeks and even at the weekend at api was much better than he had been earlier in the season so it seems like he's getting his game back together his only win in his pga career is and it was in texas at the valero so maybe that's good news for him zalatoris texas guy obviously maybe he's a bit better on these greens than he is on any other greens but but outside of short game, everything else, I mean, the wedges are not the best, but you know, outside of that third and approach, 12th and opportunities gained, he's going to give himself ample opportunity to make birdies. And if we're really worried that he's going to leave too much on the table in terms of bogey avoidance and things like that, he's very good around the greens. So well, maybe Zelotoris is a pretty good look here, just with the way that he's been playing. We saw Scheffler kind of break through, make it to the finals a year ago. Scheffler, a more complete player, T to green, and especially on the greens than Zalatoris is. But all of a sudden, Zalatoris starts making those like 35-footers, which he's been known to do. Again, it's like the five-footers, and hey, we get into gimme range. If it was me, I'd make him putt it out, but maybe other people are, are a bit have a bit more courtesy maybe they're a bit more gentlemanly they are professional golfers mind you that maybe they'll give him a four-foot putt again 
I wouldn't. I really think that's why Sergio's done well at this tournament over time. They're like, yeah, Sergio, you're good with that two-footer. Don't worry about it. And I'd be like, man, you need to fucking make that two-footer, Sergio, because I know you're missing half those. Uh, but, you know, again, these guys, a bit more gentlemanly than I'm going to be. Webb playing some decent golf game, not all the way back at the Valspar, but that was a nice step in the right direction of we want to see. And then guys that have played well at this tournament, Sergio and Kisner, like they don't come in in good form whatsoever. Kisner obviously played well, rallied to make the weekend at the Valspar. That's always encouraging to see. Lowry, you got to think dude's getting tired after a while. He's a big, burly fella. Uh, and after a weekend of drinking on St. Patrick's Day, who knows with him at the moment. Is Henley qualified for this tournament? Let's go see. Yeah, we got Russell Henley. He's in here. Yeah, the back end of the field, you got Takumi Kanata. Probably not going to pay much mind to him. Min Woo Lee, Lucas Herbert is in here as well. Oh, Bizayden Hout is in this tournament. Great. Can't wait to lose again. Keith Mitchell, Robert McIntyre, Keegan, and Munoz were like the late ads for alternates along with Seb Straka as we start looking into it. Matthew Wolf is going to be in this field. Thomas Peters will be in this field of guys that maybe you weren't sure if they were going to be there or not. Neiman back in Texas could be a good look like... You either want to prioritize, I think at least, like these short hitters who do gain a little bit off the tee through accuracy, a la the Kuchers, the Kisners of the world, the Norens for that matter. Although Norens off the tee, it's funny, if he had just had the short game and putting that he's showing off through three rounds at the Valspar at the Players' Championship, he would have won the Players' Championship based on the way that he was hitting his approaches. So he's someone who hasn't quite got it all on the same page for an entire tournament yet we're seeing good results out of him over and over and over. So that's really encouraging to see. Let's take a look at the best players right now, uh, proximity-wise. Let's get, actually get out. Uh, no, let's let's keep on here. There are guys in the field who are great from 100 to 125. Hoagie and Xander, both in the field and both top five over the past 24 rounds. You'll see Morikawa is up there. Spieth, Spieth is actually interesting at a course like this. If he can just hit fairways, which is a big ask for one Mr. Jordan Spieth, but we've seen him play better at shorter courses over the past little bit. Bryson's back in the field, too. That's always fun to see. Uh, Corey Connors is another one from that range. You see Horschel up there. Oh, good. Pazadenhout. Cam Smith, who's made some deep runs. Matt Kuchar, who's obviously made some deep runs. Like, this is kind of the number where we want to be around. Where does Scheffler rank in this number? Old Iron Chef. Scheffler's 27th, so yes, he is going to be up there as well. Justin Thomas was another one that we saw. Keegan should have a good run here. I don't know if he can chip or putt his way, but if he's hitting all the greens in regulation, maybe that's good enough to give him a few gimmies. Historically, Sergio had been very good from that range. Leishman's another one we've seen advance over time. Cameron Young is playing very good with his wedges. I wouldn't sleep on Cameron Young in this situation. It seems like the rub is a little bit off of him right now, too. Obviously, he's going to be like a three or four seed in whatever pool he ends up in. So maybe he's a decent sleeper to go take a look at. Other than that, it's a lot of guys that just aren't playing. Homa is inside the top 55. Mito's not going to be playing. Stanley's another one we saw make a deeper run. He had been up there. Tiger, obviously, when he had played the last time was with Beer Garden. He ended up losing to him. No Hideki, no Landry, no Kramer Hickok. Rory uh, has been playing better with his irons as of late, too. You see Zalatoris up there. So if we take more of a macro view of this type of thing and try to look at... Let's see here. We'll go at a custom stat model. We'll get to proximity. And we'll search by once that loads up. Last, we'll take a look at the last 50 rounds. Give us a larger sample of proximity inside. Maybe you want to ratchet it up a little bit and take a look at 
who is the best over the last 12 rounds or eight rounds is really heating up right now. But you can see that's where Rom's problems have really stemmed from in close. Now he's going to be trying to drive a lot of these shorter par fours. I would guess he's better on his long proximity than anything else. But on these shorter par fours, I mean, that's pretty telling of what's going on with him right now from 150 and in, he's been legitimately bad versus the PGA tour. Uh, and I mean, his proximity is fourth overall. Cause he's so good from so far away and maybe he can get up to the green, utilize that short game. And it's not an issue, but from in close, he just hasn't been good over the last 50 ditto with Cantlay. Uh, but again, you can see they get better as it goes along. Uh, Bryson, not the best from in close. You have Morikawa and Thomas, the best from in close of any of these guys, not a shocker. They're the two best iron players in the world. Cam Smith's another one who does pretty well from that range. Finau, does well from that range let's take a look at old Finau how has he been doing even from these ranges recently well at the Genesis still gained on the field from that regard for some reason there's no play I guess he was just not hitting any shots from that range at the players championship (laughs) poor Tony too much just being bad but it's funny the the closer he's been to the tee has been all right I mean the approaches themselves actually haven't been all that bad it's been the driving that's been really horrendous for Tony Finau as of late who are other guys from that from these two kind of quadrants? Uh, answer hasn't been good from there, although his game is coming back around. That's what I mean. You can kind of take um, longer term. You can take shorter term if you want. But I think shorter term does give you a pretty good insight into who's been really good at this. Obviously, Scheffler's been really good. Rory's not playing, but he's been all right. Connors has been all right, uh, trending better as of late. Uh, Na is someone who's good from 150 and in. Who else here? Uh, Paul Casey, he'll be in the field. He's not WD, but uh, he was from the Valspar. That's why he's listed that way, because the field has not updated yet. So from 100 to 150, I guess, is what we're going to be looking at here. More Charlie Hoffman, not in the field. Uh, Webb Simpson, pretty good from that regard. So let's shrink it back down. Obviously, Webb's not going to pop up because we don't have the Valspar rounds in here yet. If we just take a look at past 12 rounds, is anyone heating up with their wedges from in close anymore? 150 and in. And maybe that can give us a little bit better example. Cantlay has not been playing well. Uh, Rom's actually gotten better from 125 and in over that time. Morikawa's gotten worse, but still not bad. Thomas, very good. Spieth, very good. Louis, you know, the closer you get, the better he's going to get. It's been really bad uh, in the short term from those ranges. I mean, Harris English shirt, Xander heating up from this range. Maybe Xander's going to be a look here. God, I don't like that at all. But maybe this is the type of tournament he can win. It has no cut, theoretically. Scheffler, been doing very well from down there. Kevin Na is another one. We haven't seen him play in a while because of the paternity leave. But if he is truly back, that's someone to look at. Webb Simpson, good in both of those. Russell Henley, amazing in both of those. Ugh. Could I take Russell Henley in a match play? I don't know about that. EVR, all right, that's pretty good there. Aaron Wise continues to be pretty good. I don't know if Wise is in the field or not, though, I guess would be the question. Let's see, Aaron Wise. Nope, Aaron Wise, net, net in the field for this week. Mac Hughes, I believe, is in the field. He advanced out of his pod. The only thing that he's really good at when he's hitting his irons are 125 to 150. Norin, uh, I mean, Norin's in here twice for some reason. Um, not sure why, but it's the same stat, so I guess it really doesn't matter. Uh, has been bad with his approaches, but there's something with him in this course in particular that I'm going to wait more than I'm going to look at the stats, and that's why I think that you play this sort of weird format by ear. Lotto was a disaster at the Valspar Championship, but on paper sets up pretty well for this course. Uh, Higo does not. Malnati most certainly not in the field. Uh, is Rose in? Is Rose still inside? 
Let's see. Yeah, Rose is in the field. He'll be playing. So Rose, when we take a look at him, is still pretty good from 125 to 150. I don't know if Woodland is in the field. West Wood is in the field. Fleet Wood is in the field. Nope. We are not getting any. Oh, poor, poor Gary. I guess he would have had to win to get in uh, last week, and that just didn't work out because he ended up missing the cut. Who else here? Luke List? Yeah, Luke List has got to be in here. I doubt he's a, eh, there we go. Maybe they can give him a few games. Oh, Cuss Guy, Richard Bland, making his first appearance. We are getting Bubba. We are getting Herman. We are getting Norin, and we are getting Poulter. Four guys at the very back end who are going to be four seeds, all with legit chances for upsets in whatever that they want to do. So I think there are many ways to tackle this. Like I said, uh, I want to take off that filter, go back to strokes gained, and take a look at some Pete Dye performers uh, throughout the course of time. Sometimes that's you know led us astray. Sometimes it's led us in a good direction when it comes to guys like Kucher or comes to guys like Kisner. Like I said, Sony Open uh, seems to be a course which jibes well with this. Maybe the Travelers. Um, for some of these shorter hitters, if that's what we want to look at, what are we at past 12 rounds? Let's go past 24 rounds and we'll just take this year. Once that loads itself in, obviously take this year, 2021, make sure that sticks when we click it, 2020 and 2019. We'll take a look at the past three seasons because obviously we're only into March into 2022. So taking a look at the past three years just to filter out some of the back end guys that are not drawing Pete Dye information from 2014 or something like that. And then we'll just go down to that handy Pete Dye filter and see what we got going on here. Pete Dye. See who some of the better players in this field are, at least in the short term, on Pete Dye courses. I know that we do this most times when it comes down to it. And we'll go to average. Yep, there we go. And maybe even take a look at Tita Green. So guys that have not performed well are Spieth, Louie, uh, Harrison English not playing. Xander's been bad at Pete Dye courses. But if that's you know, a lot of that is from the players, I'm guessing. He only has 20 overall courses. Yeah, the players, PGA Championship, players, travelers. He did play the Heritage. He had a really nice finish at the Heritage the year that Kadira won. I know because he was in my uh, super good lineup that year. So he's actually played pretty well at the Heritage. Okay, at the travelers. He's been really bad at the players. And that's one that can kind of screw up your strokes gained overall. I wish there was a way to eliminate that from uh maybe i'll talk to moose about how to eliminate certain courses bryson's been really good uh he might even be i mean callum Terran, novak yeah bryson casey Harmon, webb simpson lowry Corey connors over the past 24 rounds have been the best overall he said it's a bit unfair to xander when you're only playing basically he played the heritage he wasn't playing the travelers every year or the amex for the course that he needs to uh and any of those so when you're only taking like PGA Championship and the players, it's a bit dicier when it comes down to. It. I said you you might want to build your own one that has like Heritage, Heritage, Colonial, and Sony. Uh, looking at that path might be a decent way to go about it. But as you can see, Casey Harmon, Webb, Lowry, Connors, all pretty good. Answer DJ Zalatoris. Okay, that's good to know. Daniel Hauserberger. Not so bad either. There's Sergio. He continues to pop up there. Fleetwood. Now that his game is starting to get back into form a little bit, not the worst thing in the world to look at him. How did Patrick Reed end up at the players? It's funny, for as bad as Patrick Reed has been, he had the stretch of the three miscuts, Arnold Palmer, Honda, and Genesis, 26th at the players. Most certainly did not do it off the tee, but if you can figure out how just to keep it in the 
friggin' fairway. Uh, the rest of his game is less. It was less of a disaster at the players. Put it that way. He did gain nine strokes putting. When you gain nine strokes putting and you only come in twenty six, that's probably not good. I want any reason to start looking up Patrick Reed again, and he's just not giving me that reason. Who else is going to be playing here? Rom, Thomas, and Neiman, all pretty good. Hatton pops up as well. <sighs> Brooks, Scotty, Chef. Adam Scott is going to be down there. Maybe Scott can make enough putts to do it. So, again, there's not that much that we can tell about what the stats are going to dictate to us for the match play. A lot of it's going to be gut feel. A lot of it's going to be current form. A lot of it is just going to be what you see on the paper. Maybe you can make some good decisions when it comes to the betting market. For DraftKings, I do think it is important to identify your quadrants. Don't get ahead of yourself whatsoever and just try to you know locate everything. Everything's going to be like March Madness. Take your guys from the top. Take your guys from the bottom. Uh, I know that there's probably going to be a theory that in cash games, maybe you overload two brackets. Use three guys from two brackets, hope to get two to move on, and maybe a two of six is all you need to do it in cash games. I don't play cash games, so I don't know. That's a theory that we can go behind. I think there are many ways that you can go about it, but you're going to hear a lot of discourse this week about taking the guys from the different quadrants uh, and making sure that your path could be a six of six. You don't want to get into a situation where you take two guys from the same pod. You're just lowering the you're lowering the expected value of each of the lineups you get into. Now, as I mentioned before, that although we put that theory into practice every single year the results never really back it up because no one's good enough really you're gonna have to be so lucky to get six of six guys through if you get four of six through you're like you're guaranteed to cash in gpps because the the predominance are gonna be like there's gonna be more zero of sixes than five of sixes and six of sixes once you get past the pod state and into the knockout stage so like i said if you overload one side of the bracket and hope to get one guy through the finals that's a way to make the money but you're not going to win the big money in that circumstance because the winning lineup is going to have probably three of the four guys in the final four, at least two of the final four guys, and probably the winner to go along with it. That's what the winning lineups have looked like at this tournament on DraftKings. Again, it starts on Wednesday this week, so the show is going to be pushed a little bit through it, so you can play it. But what I wanted to say about the discourse around having like the the perfect bracket, the 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 quadrant by quadrant to make sure your guys aren't playing each other until as late as possible. You will hear everyone talk about that. However, Sky puts out these numbers at DFS on Twitter, the host of the European Tour Picks and Bet Show or the DP World Tour Picks and Bet Show on Mayo Media Network, along with Tom Jacobs. He analyzes this thoroughly. And although we talk about it, it's a lot like the PM, AM, AM, PM weather advantages, although that is the discourse within our bubble of podcasts and people who tout DFS and the DraftKings and betting specific type shows, people don't actually do it en masse. It's like 4% of people who do it. So just because you hear everyone talking about it does not translate equally into people putting that into practice in their lineups. I know Moose worked really hard on the Fantasy National bracket generator a year ago. I think he should have that in practice once again this year, that if you want to isolate people by quadrants and build lineups easily, Fantasy National should be able to facilitate that as easy as possible, so you don't have to go through and hand build and really try to think this out. You can identify the guys in the brackets that you want, then it won't pair them up. As easy as that, and sometimes that's all you have to do about everything. Do you want to learn new skills like to build websites, troubleshoot tech issues, or transition into a new career? Over 50 million people already know that Code Academy 
is the best way to learn code. That's because Code Academy not only teaches you job-ready coding skills, but also helps you build unique projects for your portfolio, earn certificates, and even prep for technical interviews. Finding the right career can impact your life in a very, very healthy way. Trust me, I know about that. When you find the thing that you're meant to be doing, life gets better. It doesn't get easy, but it gets a lot better and it gets a lot happier. And learning new tech skills could be the answer for people quitting as a part of the great resignation. Learn a new skill, all right? And you can learn at your own pace and get qualified for in-demand jobs. Learn coding languages such as Python, HTML, and CSS, SQL, JavaScript, and more. Are you not sure where to begin? Then Code Academy can point you in the right direction. It's an interactive platform that helps you learn by doing. And you can build your portfolio and get a certificate of completion to make yourself more marketable to future employers. Land your dream job in web development, programming, computer science, data science, and tons more. Join over 50 million people learning how to code with Code Academy and see where coding can take you. Get 15% off your Code Academy Pro membership when you go to codeacademy.com and use promo code MAYO. That's promo code MAYO at codeacademy.com to get 15% off Code Academy Pro. The best way to learn to code. C-O-D-E-C-A-D-E-M-Y.com. Promo code MAYO. That's M-A-Y-O, by the way. Welcome to the Pat Mayo Experience presented by DraftKings 2022 Free Agency Spin, the second version. If you missed the first version, it came out on Thursday with Jake Seeley. We went signing by signing with everything that had happened to that point and assessed the fantasy value of each of those guys and how it affects the real-life win total value and everything like that. Now, there has been more information, so we need to catch on up. Remember to smash the like button for the episode. Sub to Mayo Media Network in the comment section. Write something not horrible to help us with the algorithm in the comments. Share the show around, do all of that fun stuff, because I want to get into it right away, because we did not know the Deshaun Watson news when we recorded on Thursday. Obviously, because it did not happen until much later on that night. Actually, it didn't happen until Friday afternoon, because at that point, it really did seem like it had been down to the New Orleans Saints and the Atlanta Falcons. That was going to be it, because the Browns were out of the running. Likely story. Turns out that was not the case. Baker demanded a trade. The Browns said they weren't going to trade him. There was a lot going on in Cleveland, and all of a sudden, they end up trading three first-round picks, a few more in terms of the later rounds, and all of a sudden, they have Deshaun Watson on their team. And not only did they trade for Deshaun Watson, they made him the highest-paid quarterback in history. Guaranteed money galore. Although, there is a few weird provisions in the contract because it does sound like they are expecting him to be suspended at some point. Not sure how long that he's going to be suspended because obviously the criminal lawsuits were dropped or the criminal charges were dropped against him, but that hasn't stopped the NFL in the past from suspending anyone. Ben Roethlisberger kind of had the same incident years ago at this point. He was suspended by the league. So it looks like they're guessing like around eight games, fortunately for Deshaun Watson, that the Browns implemented a thing into his contract contract where he's essentially just paid a million bucks the first year so even if he's suspended he's not really losing any money and then they give him a raise on what he had saw from his Texans contract anyway so the real life implications of this are kind of strange but from a fantasy perspective there is really no better spot for him to have landed in terms of churning out fantasy points now maybe that's unfair 
Because obviously we know that the Bengals are good, the Ravens should be good, and the Steelers just never die, regardless of who they have on their roster. Like, their defense will be good. So one of the big keys for the Texans, even the years that they were going to the playoffs, was they would constantly be giving up points, and then Deshaun Watson would have to either let them jump out to a big lead or rally them back and cause him to throw a bunch. And with this Browns team, like, it's looking pretty formidable with, like, an A type caliber quarterback so maybe you see that their defense ends up stepping up maybe they can run the ball a little bit more and maybe that takes away from the overall bottom line of the fantasy value of Deshaun Watts because we think of how he's going to perform he was top five for three consecutive his three healthy years in at least his last three healthy years I think 2017 he blew out his knee I think that was his rookie year, but he was on pace to be like a top five guy at that point too, because he does sort of the best of both worlds. When I spoke with Jake on Thursday, we talked about Carson Wentz and that year that he was the front runner for MVP. It wasn't so much that he was running the ball a ton. What was happening was he was able to elude defenders and take off when he had to and rush for a few touchdowns along the way. And Watson's sort of the elevated version of that. He's better at everything than even like primo Carson Wentz was. So he's going to rush for three to six touchdowns on the ground. He's not going to be Josh Allen or Lamar Jackson. Even Josh Allen took a little bit of a step back in terms of overall rushing attempts and yardage until we got really late in the season and in the playoffs when that became a focal point of his game again. He's not a run first quarterback by any measure but if he can average between 20 and 40 on the ground a score once every three games like that is a huge dynamic that's going to separate him from everyone else we want Kyler Murray to be someone who runs all the time because so much of his fantasy value is derived from that when he was the number one overall quarterback for that early stretch two years ago until he became injured he was doing like Lamar plus type stuff he was throwing for 300 a game and he was rushing for 80 and calling his own number around the goal line at the same time it was just piling up fantasy points more than you can imagine now what we saw from the second half of that year mainly all of last year as well as he just wasn't running as much he wasn't calling his own number as much especially after the first few games last year it kind of went away completely so I don't know if that's ever going to return to Kyler's game because I think that's the level where you want him to be at he's going to run more than someone like Dak Prescott Will. Although Dak will still call his own number and end up with a good amount of touchdowns on the ground. He's not going to have those periphery rushing stats around it. And it's not like Watson wasn't piling up 300 plus yard games. I believe he had double digits two years ago uh, and he had the most in the league to that point. So the throwing's never going to be an issue for him. It's, I'm just thinking about in the context of this team. What are they going to ask Deshaun Watson to do when he's playing? And this is not even putting into the ether that he might miss the first eight games of the season, the first six games of the season. So that's going to make him very unattractive when it comes to fantasy drafts, especially head-to-head leagues. Although, if you could just keep a top-five quarterback on your bench for the first half of the season, you would theoretically have him for the second half of the season. So that could turn out really well for your team, especially if you have extended, extended benches or anything like that. But the way that it shakes down right now with Watson is he'll be playing behind an amazing offensive line, for the first time in his life. He has two legitimate threats in the backfield to carry some of the load, be it Chubb or Kareem Hunt at this point. No Jarvis Landry, but Amari Cooper is there now, and no Austin Hooper, and David Njoku was placed on the franchise tag. So both those guys should see a massive spike in production, especially volume. Because when I spoke with Jake, we were thinking Baker, or some facsimile of Baker, some backup, Case Keenum maybe, was 
going to end up being the quarterback. We're like, ah, top 25 for Amari Cooper sounds about right, with the potential for a bit more, but I wouldn't go crazy on it. If All things are not going to stand as they are right now. Obviously, there's more free agency, there's more draft, there are trades to be happened. But... As it stands right now, Amari is the clear alpha in this offense. He is the wide receiver one with a big-time quarterback throwing him the ball at this point. I think you could pretty much pencil him as a very high-end number two, low-end number one until they go out. Like, had they have gotten Allen Robinson, that would have been a bit of a different story. Even if they gotten Juju, that would have been a bit of a different story. But that's not the case that we're dealing with right now. And Njoku, I mean, he's not the greatest blocker in the world, but if you go look at his player profiler from the year that he came out of the draft, I've already seen this floating around on Twitter a bunch just like what a supreme athlete and the skill set and the in, I wouldn't even say the intangibles the measurables in terms of spark score and athleticism David Njoku is one of the best in football now I don't know why that wasn't able to translate at any part of his career and you would think like five six years into this he's probably not quite the athlete he once was but this is now a role where it's his unless Harrison Bryant really ends up being someone that Deshaun Watson falls in love with then we're looking at Cooper who was able to sustain either Hopkins or even Brandon Cooks uh, two years ago as top 15 type guys Will Fuller was amazing for the games that he played for them on a per game basis and he still did prop up a tight end or two or three depending on who the Texans were running out there that day. They never had a consistent tight end. What if Njoku can be that guy? All of a sudden, he's in like the top 10 conversation, not someone that you would go out of your way to be like, man, I need to have Njoku this year. He's going to win me fantasy leagues. I don't think anyone is saying that. What we're saying is that you can probably take him if he's not overdrafted at this point, 13th, 14th round as someone who has the potential to be a top five guy, depending on the touchdown rate that he ends up coming up with. Like Irv Smith in Minnesota, I would throw into that bucket. They're not someone that you want to rely on. Someone who's going to have guaranteed production. They're not a part of that tier of tight end. But with Watson, there is ceiling for Njoku, depending on the other moves that they make. Now, Donovan Peoples-Jones, with his speed, could he fill in to be that facsimile for Will Fuller in this Browns offense? Maybe. I could most definitely see that. It all really depends on who they end up getting as their wide receiver, too, or who ends up winning that job. Is it Rashad Higgins? Is it Donovan Peoples-Jones? I don't know. I can't tell you that answer. It's probably Peoples-Jones to this point. And in the Stefanski offense, it should run a bit more efficiently than maybe that there was a part of this offense that wasn't unlocked and all of us were complaining about the lack of throwing because of two things. One, maybe Baker couldn't legitimately make those throws and run the offense that Stefanski really wanted to run off of play action, really push the pace, throwing the ball down the field. Or when we talk about Baker here in a second, he played through injury all year. And I know it was his left shoulder and a myriad other ailments, and it wasn't his right shoulder, but still, like, when you dislocate any one of your shoulders and you're a quarterback, it's gonna make you play through pain. It's going to throw you off balance. You're not going to have 100% of your capacity. So maybe that's one of the reasons why the passing game was down a ton last year too. Uh, And all of a sudden Beckham leaves, goes to the Rams, and all of a sudden he looks like Odell Beckham again, where he just did not in Cleveland at any point of his tenure there. So maybe that's on Baker. Maybe that's on the offense. I'm not really sure. But with Watson, those problems should be solved. Now, how much does a year away from football affect Deshaun Watson? Couldn't tell you. No idea. Almost have to treat it like if you're going to draft him or target him, you have to treat it like it didn't make a difference whatsoever. Maybe he even got better with a year of rest and allowed his body to heal. You have no idea how that's going to work, but you could talk yourself into the case of fading him because, oh yeah, he's rusty. He might be suspended eight games. Sure. If you're drafting him, 
this upcoming year. And obviously, by the time you do drafts, you're going to have a bit more information than this, that even if he is suspended, as long as he can reach his peak potential, there's no easier position to fill in in the interim than quarterback. So you should be fine in that regard. So it's a big boost for everyone. I mean, Nick Chubb, no, not really, because he's going to be what he is, uh, no matter who is healthy and who is injured on the Cleveland Browns. As we've seen with Nick Chubb out of that backfield, his role is just written in stone. So if Kareem Hunt gets hurt, they'll find some other jabroni to come in and take half the snaps or 40% of the snaps and be used as a pass catcher, where the opposite way doesn't work like that. When Chubb gets hurt, it's all Kareem Hunt. It's all Dearness Johnson. He's not there anymore. But that's what we saw this year, that when one of those guys goes down, it's a full-on workhorse back role for the other guy. But it does not necessarily translate to when the backup is hurt for Nick Chubb. They like to deploy Nick Chubb in a very methodical way. Maybe it's to keep him fresh and try to make him a Derrick Henry-type figure where when they need him in the second half to break off these big chunk runs, which he does, and use that power running game that he is not going to be burnt out from the first half. Maybe they just know that about him. And listen, we clamored for this for years as fantasy people. Like we saw it with Lamar Miller in Miami all those years. It's like, oh man, if they just gave him 20 touches a game, he would score so many points. And then they gave him 20 touches a game in Houston. He scored exactly the same amount of points. He just... The more you increased his volume, the more you dropped his efficiency, which goes hand in hand, obviously. But it was a precipitous drop off for him in that circumstance is what we're looking for. So that's the Cleveland offense with Watson. So I guess that brings us to Baker now. What are we doing with Baker? Someone is going to give Baker a chance, and you can kind of boil it down to just a few names. And there's really a bunch of different teams that kind of fall into this mix, because Jameis is now rumored to be going back to New Orleans to fill their need. I'm guessing Matt Ryan is staying in Atlanta, unless he feels slighted by the franchise, like Baker did by Cleveland, by wanting to go out and acquire Deshaun Watson, coming up with this huge package. At least in New Orleans, you know, they need to go sign someone to play quarterback for them, even if they're bringing back Jameis, he's currently a free agent. Jimmy G is still out in the ether. It's looking more and more like he might just stay in San Francisco at this point, unless someone really wants to pony up and trade for Jimmy G. I thought that he would be gone. He seems to feel like he's going to be gone, but something about that coaching staff doesn't like Trey Lance. Maybe someone should go trade for Trey Lance, and that could be a potential opportunity here. So you have Jameis, Matt Ryan, Jimmy G, Josh Johnson signed as Russell Wilson's backup in Denver, which is actually a really nice fit. Go team XFL and Josh Johnson. He was even all right with the Jets and like mop up. You don't want Josh Johnson starting for your franchise, like more than a game. But if you need a game or someone to come in, like after a quarter, when someone gets hurt, you can do a lot worse than Josh Johnson. He's been around. Guy knows almost every single playbook in the NFL. He can adapt to any sort of situation. This would actually be one of the better situations he had ever been put in. Should anything happen to Russell Wilson with the amount of playmakers on Denver right now. And then you have Baker. I assume we should probably throw Jordan Love into this mix as well. Only because with Rogers back for, Lord knows how long. Three years, let's say, minimum. Two years minimum, probably three years in Green Bay for Aaron Rodgers. What, what do you do with first-round pick Jordan Love? He's just sitting there. He did not look great against the Kansas City Chiefs in his start last year, filling in for COVID Rodgers when he was out, but... Oh, do you really want to run it down the well with Baker? Someone who maybe you do talk yourself into he was just so injured last year and now he's healthy that he can get back to being efficient Baker, the guy that broke a ton of NFL rookie passing records. I mean, that's potentially on the table. How much do you have to trade to get him right now? Probably not a ton, to tell you the truth. I did see PF. 
NXT commentator was talking about, you know, this is great for, uh, they, they somehow shifted the narrative that Baker should be humbled a little bit on the way out the door. It's like this, this franchise, you know, they made him play, or he at least elected to, or the franchise made him play through myriad injuries last year that was clearly affecting his performance. And now he's just enemy number one of the state in Cleveland, at least in terms of their franchise and organization. We need to get him out the door, although they wanted him back two days ago. Now they don't want anything to do with him. So you can probably squeeze him away for relatively little at this point. It'll probably take a little bit more to get Matt Ryan, theoretically, but then you have to take on his salary. You probably don't want to do that for an aging Matt Ryan unless you were a team on the cusp. And none of these teams who need quarterbacks outside of India are really on the cusp. Like, do you really think that Seattle is on the cusp? No. No one thinks that. Carolina? I mean, they've really padded their offensive line. They went out and got a new center. They went and they got a new right guard. Their offensive line was trash a year ago. Right now, they're bringing back Sam Darnold. Baker going to Carolina would be hilarious that you would just have the first and third picks from that draft already on their second team starting for a new franchise. Well, you know, Lamar is not necessarily setting the world on fire as of last year, but he won an MVP. Very good quarterback. Josh Allen, consistently in the MVP hunt. And I mean, I, I suppose it could be worse. You could have drafted Josh Rosen that year, but these two are just you know, on a second franchise already, which is mind boggling to me. I don't think that Carolina will go after Baker, but I don't think that you go after Darnold either. So here we are. Baker to the Colts makes the most sense. It's whether the Colts want him or not. And is Baker where the Colts are so, they call, I would say that the Colts are very close. They're one competent quarterback away from making a run. Like, is Baker better than Wentz? No. Maybe. Yes. The same. I, I think he's in that tier with Wentz, who I don't think is, like, all that good. I don't think he's a transcendent quarterback. But you could potentially make the case that Baker is someone that could elevate his game, become better than that. And then if you're running sort of the high, like, is Baker better than Jimmy G? No, probably not, right? So if you could trade two-thirds or a third or a second or whatever it might be to get Jimmy G, and you're a team that has aspirations of winning the division, competing for a Super Bowl with a really good offensive line, a pretty good defense, an immaculate running game, not a ton of weapons in that offense in terms of the receiving game, but if you're the Colts, are you better off bringing in Jimmy G than Baker Mayfield? I, again, I think they're all the same part of that bucket that was right around Carson Wentz. And you just got rid of Carson Wentz. So I know a lot of that had to do with salary, and you did get something for him, which was stunning. I know what the commanders are up to, but that's for a different... Actually, it's not even for a different day. We broke that down two weeks ago. Me, Cust, and Feinberg talking about how that makes no sense. And of course, Cust loved Carson Wentz because that only makes sense, right? But... Jameis, I, I just don't know what these teams are going to do. Obviously, they need quarterbacks. I don't think that Seattle is going to roll with Drew Locke. Jameis back to New Orleans, I guess you can draw the most dotted lines towards that. The Fitzmagic, if his hip is healthy, I don't know. Why not Fitzmagic? He's going to go Chuck if that's what you're looking for. Uh, probably not what the Colts or Browns are looking for. Obviously, the Browns don't need that anymore. But Seattle, you have two very capable receivers. Just here's a guy who can get them the ball. He'll get the other team the ball, too. You, you don't need to worry about that part of it. He's going to be wildly inefficient. But he's going to find your guys downfield if he's healthy. So maybe Fitzpatrick could be in this mix. I would have said the same thing about Jameis, too. Although we saw Jameis last year. Honestly, before he got hurt, he didn't look like old Jameis at all. He wasn't taking those risks down the field. And, you know, it hurt his fantasy production, but his real life production? 
Wasn't too bad. Doesn't love throwing to backs out of the backfield, which would be fine for Seattle. Not so much when you have Elvin Kamara, who is one of the best running backs in football, especially out of the backfield. Maybe you should try to get him the ball. I don't know. Baker would be good for Slant Boy, though. Michael Thomas would be eating that up over and over until, you know, he would start throwing behind him or something like that. Then we'd all be outraged at Baker the entire time. So I have no idea where he's going to go. I know that he wants to go to the Colts, whether or not the Colts want him or not. This is like a sophomore in high school. You know, you, you pine after your lucky lady or your lucky man out there, and they just don't feel the same way. That could be the case with the Colts and Baker Mayfield right now. So keep an eye out. I don't think he's going to command much on the open market here in a trade, though. He might even get cut at some point. Seeing Baker as a backup this year and Trubisky as a starter is just like, it, it hurts the mind to think about that potential scenario going into last season. But hey, the NFL changes very rapidly. So here we are in that circumstance. One thing we also did not hit was Devontae Adams. I don't quite understand. I mean, I do understand this. Anytime you can go out and get Devontae Adams, one of the premier wide receivers in football, I think you just say you do it. Of course, you make him the highest paid wide receiver of all time. Although looking at the numbers, it's really a three-year deal that's worth a ton of money. It's not going to be the five years. He's not going to be there the five years. Unless they are winning Super Bowls because of Devontae Adams, he's not going to be there super long term. He'll be there for three years, maybe even be a cap casualty before that if the Raiders suck. And the thing is, the Raiders need to be really good just to compete in this division, which is absolutely loaded. I don't understand how you can look around and listen, maybe Russell Wilson to Denver. He saw the options and was like, you know what? I'm going to make this work. I think this team has a lot of potential. And all these free agents coming to the Los Angeles Chargers on defense being like, hey, we can really bolster this up. And now Devontae Adams, maybe that was the only suitor. Maybe the Raiders were the only team that was like, hey, here's the first, here's the second, we'll take them off your hands and we're going to pay you. And it made a lot of logical sense for Green Bay to do that because they just legitimately could not afford to keep him at this point because they don't want to play around with the dead cap money and mix everything around. They're not capologists. Maybe they should go hire the guy on the Saints who seems to come up with $40 million of free money every single year for the New Orleans cap, but they're just not doing that in Green Bay, so they couldn't keep Devontae Adams. More on that in a second in terms of the Packers receiving game right now, which is not great. But everyone's looking around being like, you know whose division I want to go to? That guy, Patrick Mahomes, the best quarterback in football. I, maybe there's like a, a pride thing where it's like, oh, if we can just knock off Patrick Mahomes, we're going to be sitting pretty. Like, Why not just go to the NFC where no one is anymore? You know, there's Brady, there's Rodgers, and there's this, and Stafford, I suppose, and the Rams, who are running it back once again and now adding Allen Robinson. But that's three teams. Seven of you make the playoffs. The Raiders got in the weirdest way possible last year, and they wildly overachieved. Do we think that they're going to achieve those same heights when both the Chargers and Broncos got significantly better, better than the Raiders got in the offseason so far to this point, and the Chiefs are still the Chiefs? Seems really stupid. I don't get it. And especially spending all this money right now. I guess that you're new to Vegas. You need to put a competitive football product on the field. But I don't want to say that they should necessarily be tanking. But until they find a real quarterback, nothing against Carr. He's in that. He's better than Wentz. He's better than Jimmy G. He's better than Baker, slightly. But he's not Deshaun Watson good. He's not Russell Wilson good. He's not Justin Herbert good. He's not Patrick Mahomes good. Until you solve that problem or you have like the best defense in the league or something crazy like that, it's not really going to make that much of a difference. Uh, almost like the argument that I've made of, I don't understand why the commanders traded for Wentz. Like, what is your ceiling with this team? First round exit? Great news. 
does the revenue really mean that much to you that you would just, you're going all in to get knocked out in the first round at best if you make the playoffs? Come on. No one wants to cheer for a franchise like that. Maybe you do. I don't know. I don't know where your priorities are at, but that's just, it would not be for me. I want my team swinging for the fences in these type of situations. I either be bad enough that you can turn it around and be really good. And I don't condone what Jacksonville's doing, spending a bunch of money on the absolute goober free agents who all suck. Like, great. When you can spend like $80 million and not move the needle whatsoever outside of offensive line, which is good for Trevor Lawrence, but to bring in like, C-minus playmakers? Yeah, great. Fantastic news. Spend all your money. That's great. At least getting Devontae Adams is a real needle mover. So for the purposes of fantasy football, obviously this hurts Hunter Renfro the most. Is it a huge upgrade for Derek Carr? I would say slightly. Is he a top 10 quarterback? Probably not. Is he better than Russell Wilson? Fantasy-wise? Maybe would be my answer. Probably not. And we think that Russell Wilson's probably between like the 8th and 15th best quarterback in fantasy with the fact that he doesn't run anymore. Derek Carr doesn't run at all. So that, that unless you're Tom Brady throwing for 50 touchdowns and almost 6,000 yards, which Carr is not going to do, then what's your ceiling? Your ceiling is like the 10th best quarterback. That's why you don't take him. In two quarterback leagues, he'll fall because no one wants him. And when he's being drafted as the 24th quarterback overall, yeah, in a two quarterback league, if he's 14th, that's a real value. But in a one quarterback fantasy league, please, no no thanks to Derek Carr. Uh, I don't think we're going to see over 100 catches or around that for Hunter Renfro again this season. Even Darren Waller. Josh McDaniels might have a new system and maybe that leans a lot towards the wide, the, towards the tight end. And maybe we see a more consistent Darren Waller because he's still a, just a night. Uh, he's a matchup nightmare for defenses because of his size and because of his speed and where he lines up on the field. But I wouldn't really cons- be too concerned about him. I think we're talking about a top five, top six tight end overall with the potential to be number one. That's a lot of it has to do with consistency and touchdowns, but that's where I would not put him as like the favorite to be number one. I'd put him as the favorite to be like number four, number five, something like that. But if you're in that tier of tight end, you do have the chance to be the best one. If Kelsey gets hurt or Andrews has a down year, whatever it might be, maybe Pitts regresses because legitimately there's no one else in that offense. There's different circumstances where you could envision a path of Waller being tight end one, even with Devontae Adams there. Renfro, I mean, he was a tight end or wide receiver number one this year. It's not going to be the case this year. How low does he fall? That's tough. I don't know how this new offense is going to run with Josh McDaniels. Uh, If he plays the Jacoby Myers and or Wes Welker, Julian Edelman type role uh, as low A dot slot guy, uh, he could still end up with like 80 catches, which would be good. But that now makes him a best case scenario wide receiver too, more likely low end number three, high end number four, and maybe due to a lack of consistency. The biggest thing I'm having trouble parsing is what do we do with Devontae Adams? Is Devontae Adams going to be the best wide receiver in football on the field? Probably, because he is the best wide receiver. He's in a handful of guys who can be considered the best wide receiver in football. Will he be fantasy's best receiver without Aaron Rodgers? I don't think he's going to be, no. Is he still going to be drafted inside the top five? Maybe. I'm not taking him there. I I actually thought that if he was still in Green Bay, I would probably draft him over Cooper Cup. I thought that was a legitimate case you could make this year. With you know, Obviously, Cup's not going to do what he did again by breaking every NFL record, so just 
natural regression down from that uh, and then potential skill regression uh, there's more mouths to feed there now another year in this offense maybe Robert Woods comes back and this isn't a downgrade Cooper Cup I'm just making a case that maybe he doesn't have 2300 yards this year uh, if he ends up with 1700 yards someone could out touchdown him or maybe Adams could up his game if he was still in Green Bay but he was the only option in Green Bay they had specific goal line packages for him to make sure that he scored double digit touchdowns every single year you really think Vegas is going to have that well a they don't have Aaron Rodgers so they're not going to throw for as many touchdowns or at least be as efficient in the red zone maybe they will run pick plays where Adams can still get his in the end zone every single time but it's just not going to be the same even if you cut those in half those amount of targets those amount of looks from inside the five inside the 10 yard line that's going to severely impact his overall touchdown upside maybe he's good enough to overcome it scores longer touchdowns it doesn't matter but the Packers offense was so devoid of talent that he was a magnet four targets right up around 30 percent of a target share in an offense it's not gonna be the case this year it could be 28 percent, maybe but coming from Derek Carr that's not as valuable as 30 percent coming from Aaron Rodgers and just the amount of designed routes where he's the first look inside the five inside the 10 leading to touchdowns of that Packers offense with Aaron Rodgers able to fit it into tight windows better than anyone else in football you have to expect that number is just going to go down. So is he wide receiver one in fantasy? No, I don't think that he is. Could you come up with a case where he's outside the top five? Yeah, I think I'm going to. I want to gestate on this just a little bit, but I would have to think that there's more of a floor in play. Now, rather than just, you know, his ceiling being his floor in Green Bay, which it's been every single year, maybe that's an overreaction. Maybe Carr is better than this. And maybe with these weapons that he's going to take this leap, all of a sudden he's like the DeMar DeRozan of the NFL, where, you know, it's like age 31 season. There's a real leap. I would find that hard to believe. It wouldn't be the craziest thing to ever see. I would just have a hard time believing it. So Adams is probably going to be wide receiver four, wide receiver five, wide receiver number six, depending on how the other options come in. I'm trying to just rack my brain to think about who would I have ahead of him. And, you know, it's tough to figure out who you're going to have ahead of him at the same time. So like Hopkins won't be there. Maybe he still is inside the top five, just through other options. I mean, would you draft CD Lamb or would you draft... Devontae Adams. I think that's a legitimate discussion that you could have. The answer is probably still Adams, but I think that's that's not that wouldn't even be in the stratosphere of a, a legitimate debate. I think it's right around there at that point now, based on how these offenses look with the personnel that they have in these offenses and just the different schemes that we're gonna see. Do we really think that Josh McDaniels is gonna be a great coach? I don't. No, I I, I don't. I don't think he's gonna be that good. So now, maybe if they get Gronk, maybe if they can run some sort of facsimile of the New England offense from like years ago, and hopefully Carr can play 90% as well of Brady, that's a big ask. Maybe it could look all right. We'll see. Now, in Green Bay, they have Alan Lazard, Amare Rogers, and Randall Cobb. That's not good. So they're going to draft someone. They're going to sign someone. I'm actually kind of stunned Allen Robinson didn't go there, to tell you the truth. Uh, the running backs are still going to be fine out of the backfield. They'll have, still have both with Aaron Jones and A.J. Dillon. Maybe just convert Aaron Jones to be like a Cordero Patterson type running back slash receiver and have A.J. Dillon on the field at the same time. But it does seem like a massive downgrade. I mean, it is a massive downgrade losing the best receiver in football, especially the one that your quarterback has had the best connection with of anyone ever. And he's the back-to-back MVP. I do think that Rodgers will be fine. 
But I do think that he is on that tier fantasy-wise with Wilson and Carr and all those guys, just because he's not going to be a huge runner unless they go out and get an option and a half more to make them credible in terms of the passing game. Uh, He'll still get his. He'll still be wildly efficient. He'll prop up random dudes across the field. They're going to do something, so it's impossible to assess how their passing game is going to look. But the lack of running from Rodgers, even in the MVP year, what did he finish last year? Like quarterback number seven? Great. So if he's not MVP, what does he finish? He's just not as good fantasy-wise. He's good in individual fantasy games because of the high touchdown upside, but he's just not out there like dropping 500 on people and running for 80 on the ground. He's just not that type of player at this point. He's just too damn efficient to do that, and that hurts his fantasy numbers overall, especially not throwing the picks. Like Sometimes you want your quarterback to be throwing picks from a fantasy perspective because that's going to foster scoring on the other side, which is going to foster more throwing from your quarterback for more yardage, more touchdowns, more running, more everything. Rodgers doesn't play those games. So I'd rather have Brady than have Rodgers right now. I don't think it's particularly close at this point in a fantasy sense. So stay tuned on what's going to happen in Green Bay. Allen Robinson going to the Rams. Got to think that this is an indictment of the health of Robert Woods at this point. Or maybe they just, I mean, I I doubt Beckham plays at all this year. So does Robinson take Robert Woods' role? Does he take Van Jefferson's role? Are they upset with Van Jefferson? Obviously, Cup is going to command his 30% of the targets. That's going to happen. He's going to be drafted as wide receiver one in fantasy football. I don't think that bringing in Allen Robinson or even bringing in a Allen Robinson and having a healthy Robert Woods back week one. Well, that seems a bit far fetched at this point. I don't think it's going to affect Cooper Cup at all. So let's not worry about Cooper Cup in the pantheon of everything else. There was clearly a lack of rapport between Matt Stafford and Robert Woods. He was averaging five targets a game before he got hurt. Now it was picking up a little bit towards uh, right before he ended up getting hurt. But once we saw Beckham take over as the number two in this offense, after being ingrained a little bit, you know, he started putting up consistent fancy value. I could see, honestly, Allen Robinson, depending on how much Robert Woods does, if he's truly right and truly healthy in this offense, he'd be a wide receiver too. It's probably lofty-ish, but I mean, for years, the goof was able to foster both Cooper Cup and Robert Woods is wide receiver twos. Obviously, that gap has shifted, but they do throw the ball enough. And Robinson's a big body presence. He's a very good receiver near the end zone. He uses his body very well, uses big frame. He boxes out. He contorts well. He goes up to the highest point and gets the ball. Very strong hands. He's a legitimate touchdown threat. You can throw, he's one of the few players in the NFL you can throw the ball up to in the end zone if it's near him, and he's going to go get it. We didn't really see that in Chicago because when were they near the end zone? Never. So how's that going to work out? Plus, he was injured for most of last year, too. And after he returned from COVID, it wasn't the same guy. So it seemed like it really impacted him. Hopefully, he's good this year. I would say he's going to be drafted as a low-end wide receiver three. That's where he should be drafted because, obviously, the floor is completely unknown. But there is potential upside here, and he's probably better than Robert Woods this year. Robert Woods, if he does return at some point and he is healthy, I think he'll be consistent. He'll get a few carries along the way. But he's primarily there to block (laughs) on the outside uh, because he's so damn good at sealing the edges for a lot of these Rams runners. It's crazy to think. I mean, we saw their lack of running game in the Super Bowl, and even towards the end of the year, that unless one guy's just doing it all himself, the loss of Robert Woods is huge for the running game of the Los Angeles Rams. He is so good at that, and that's something that never really gets taken into consideration. It was when they signed him. That's why they gave him all that big money coming from Buffalo. But when we think about how good players are blocking for tight ends, because obviously we're talking about fantasy 
99% of the time. And that's just bad news. Frey was like when Kittle was blocking towards the end of last year. They're like, yeah, they really need him to block or their quarterback's going to die. Therefore, he wasn't catching any passes. Like, oh, Kittle sucks. It's like, no, he just happens to be the best blocking tight end in football now that Gronk's not in his prime anymore. And that's just going to lead to fewer targets. It's going to lead to fewer routes and fewer fantasy points. So that's why I would have Robinson over Robert Woods at the moment. Juju ends up signing with the Kansas City Chiefs. Obviously, no Sammy Watkins. I don't know how good this can really turn out for him because when the Chiefs are rolling, and maybe it's a situation where if something happens to Tyreek or something happens to Kelsey, all of a sudden, Juju's a wide receiver too. Plausible. I feel like that wide receiver two slash, I mean, let's call it for what it is. It's the wide receiver three after Kelsey and Hill, who combined for over 50% of those teams' targets. Maybe Kelsey's a bit on the decline. I don't necessarily buy that. Hill's going to be Hill until he's not Hill anymore. So let's allocate 55% of targets for those two guys. Now we have 45% of targets for everyone else on the team. That includes all the running backs. That includes me, Cole, hard man. Demarcus or Byron Pringle, Demarcus Robinson, if he's still there, who knows? They'll find someone else. And now Juju into the mix. I would put Juju as the front runner of all that. He just strikes me as a guy you're never going to know when to play. A lot like Sammy Watkins. Sammy Watkins had some nice years in Kansas City. When you look at the overall stat line, you're like, didn't he have like two good games a year? They caught two passes in every game? Yeah, that's what Sammy Watkins did. Juju might be more effective than those guys than at least Sammy Watkins and more consistent than Sammy Watkins, but it's going to be a lot of low dot routes and Kelsey runs a lot of those anyway. Like those pick plays and short routes that Mahomes throws for first downs to keep the chains moving, those generally go to Kelsey and Hill. So if Juju was stepping in, that role didn't exist for anyone else on the team, that would be one thing, but it already does. Every single year, a lot like Evan Ingram, as we saw, basically since he's been a rookie, he's seen his average depth of target go down. Now, that could be playing with Ben Roethlisberger, who has a noodle arm, and Mahomes obviously does not have a noodle arm, so maybe it goes back and is increasing. I think it's an interesting gamble, but I think a lot of people are going to think it's an interesting gamble, and that usually is a recipe for someone just building a bunch of steam in the preseason, getting overdrafted, wildly underperforming, and then being dropped after five weeks. When he has one big game in week two, and then four stinkers around it, no one wants to have that guy on their team. That's what Juju is shaping up. Now, he could score 14 touchdowns, because he runs these short routes. He's going to see tertiary coverage. That's more of a role he's comfortable with. That's possible. I just wouldn't be betting on that. As a value pick, yes. As being drafted right around where the ADP is going to go, like around 10, around 11, around 12, sure. There's there's very few bad picks from that range because you don't expect them to be starters. So if those players start on your team, that's fantastic news. Now you start drafting them in the sixth round, the fifth round, because, oh, the Chiefs offense... It's not going to turn out well for anyone. Trust me on that. Austin Hooper goes to Tennessee. Obviously, they cut Julio Jones, so he's still lingering out there. Maybe he goes to Cleveland, now that I think about it, or even Green Bay at that point. Not that I would love that. I I would love him more as a wide receiver two or three on a team rather than trying to be a wide receiver one, which he probably would be on Green Bay. So maybe not Green Bay for his fantasy purposes. Cleveland would be much better for him uh, if he can stay healthy. But this leaves us with... A.J. Brown, there's a lot of tight ends there. I don't know who's going to end up sticking on this team, but Hooper's the best pass catcher of this bunch, and we know that Tannehill likes throwing to tight ends, not necessarily just one tight end. It's like a collection of three guys, a lot like they do in Miami, where it's like Gesicki and the 14 other guys they have playing tight end. Tennessee is now shaping up to be very much in that same vein. So I can see it. I'd rather have Njoku, for example. So I'm not—until I see what cuts are made, what they do with this offense— 
maybe a tight end one, probably not. It's probably the easiest way to go about it. So the rest of the free agents since we've last talked, and again, you can find the show up on the pod feed. You can find it down in the description or just up on Mayo Media Network right now. James Washington to Dallas. Maybe that means that Michael Gallup isn't as far along as we think. Maybe he's not ready for the beginning of the season. Boston Scott has been re-signed by Philadelphia. So the unleashing of Kenneth Gainwell or Miles Sanders, that's going to have to wait because now we have another wrench into the system. Plus Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts is one. Like, would you rather have to, decide just to go off topic here, Jalen Hurts this year or Deshaun Watson? The answer is Jalen Hurts, by the way, as a fantasy quarterback unless we know for sure that Watson is going to start week one and will never be suspended, which it doesn't seem like we're, it doesn't seem like we'll know that or he will be suspended. Those seem to be the two options that we have on the table right now. So I would say that they're close and obviously Watson has much better chance of never being benched. I don't think that Hurt should be benched. I think that he gets better in year three. You would at least think that he would, but the way that he runs, he's like a cheat code in fantasy and you don't ever want to give that up Yeah, in terms of points per game. He's inside the top five last year. You can talk about how, oh, he can't make this throw. He's not that good. Philly's never winning a Super Bowl. Completely agree. Fantasy-wise. Dude is legit. Uh, and sometimes there's a stark reality between fantasy and reality. And letting your real-life assessment of a player cloud the fact they may be good in fantasy? Stupid. That's how you lose fantasy championships. Definitely not how you win them. I'll tell you that much. And Johnny Hecker went to the Panthers. I talked about the two offensive linemen. It's being, they resigned DJ Moore. It's being set up as a, a good quarterback can come in and take over. Make this offense pretty good. They also signed Dante Foreman as well. So that probably means cut Chuba Hubbard. Will we see McCaffrey? I don't know. Maybe he gets traded at some point. But it all depends on the quarterback that they bring in right now. The pickings are slim, put it that way. But Johnny Hecker like, could be their best thrower on the team. When it's between like him and Sam Darnold, I mean, I've seen Hecker throw enough trick plays on the Rams. The arm's not so bad. Maybe better than Darnold. We'll see. Anyway, that will do it on the Pat Mayo Experience. Uh, again, you can check out Thursday's show with Jake Seeley as we go through the first wave of free agents. This is now the second wave into Sean Watson, and that'll do it for me. I'll see you next time. Pat Mayo Experience! Experience! Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.